You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 91 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Govern. I am joined by my co-host, David Howe. Connor is lost in the desert somewhere, to be determined. <laughs> in this episode, we are joined by Chris Johnston, who is the operations director and project archaeologist for the Paleocultural Research Group, also known as PCRG. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I am doing all right, you know, living the dream, as I like to say. Cool. Yeah, I think we all try to say something similar in archaeology. <laughs> we all we all like it in our own way. That being said, like as a kid, were you uh, like an archaeology kid? Were you a dinosaur kid? Were you like what kind of kid were you? Yeah, sure. So I, I would say as kind of a of a, a history kid, but also like a a, a people kid. I was the, yeah. the third um, the third boy in a family of, of three boys. So I, I got to watch my older brothers, you know, grow up and make mistakes and, and observe that and know not what to do and how to get away with stuff. And then uh, when I was nine, my, my mom had a, my sister. And so I, I not that they like abandoned me or anything, but I just kind of floated <laughs> around and <laughs> you know, did, mm-hmm. did my thing. My, my brother, my oldest brother was 18. My sister was, you know, an infant and, and I was stuck there in the middle. And so I just kind of always had a passion just to, an interest in watching people and seeing what people do and, and merge that kind of with, with history. I, I definitely loved history, but like when I was a kid, you know, in middle school, I was reading books about like um, profilers, like FBI profilers of like serial killers. So this is before like criminal minds and all those shows and definitely reading stuff that I should not have been reading as a kid, but I, I just was fascinated by people and what people do. And, but definitely you know, history and, and nature. I spent a lot of time outside fishing with my dad and my grandpa. I grew up in the mountains, so a lot of time outside as well. Yeah. Well, now you're uh, you know, working for Paleo Research Group, so you're outside doing CRM, which is, I guess, all those things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not yeah. quite CRM, but but uh, we can we could dive into that later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So did you grow up in Colorado? Are you a Colorado native, as they like to say? Uh, I do. Uh, not technically a native. The the, uh, the true Colorado natives are pretty protective of that uh, label here. But uh, <laughs> I, I was born in, in Southern California, but moved to, to Colorado to Steamboat Springs. And it's a, uh, if you don't know it, it's a, it's a little ski town, not so little anymore, but up in Northwest Colorado. And uh, I grew up there from when I was three till uh, high school and, and, and beyond, actually. I spent some years after high school. Uh, living there, so pretty close to a native, almost as close as you can get, but not not truly a native. Gotcha. So, what was your first experience in anthropology? Was it really when you got to the University of Colorado Boulder? Like, did you come to undergrad knowing you wanted to be an anthropology major, or or did you come in looking at majoring in something else? Yeah. So, so I graduated high school in the early two thousands and. Uh, I, I went to CU Boulder my freshman year, you know, right after graduating high school, but I did not go into anthropology or archaeology or anything like that. It was just the classic, like, I'm going to college because everybody else is going to college. And yeah. I would think I was like a communications major or something like that and did uh, a couple of those classes and was like, no, thanks. <laughs> Don't need that. And then uh, I'd done some like film work my senior year of high school with some buddies and made some films and stuff. So I switched to a film major because that's 
going to be useful from CU Boulder, unless you're Trey Parker or Matt Stone, not much really happens from there. <laughs> My freshman year of college was spent doing a lot of things other than school, if people can pick that up. So I, yeah. I wasn't super engaged in my uh, in my education at that point, and uh, I was paying my own way. So I, I decided to kind of took a took a step back and was like, this I need to figure my life out. And so I, I actually hung around Boulder for a year and didn't go to to school. Uh, I was just working and and having fun, and then moved back up to Steamboat for a few years and was like a, a ski bum, worked at a ski shop. I worked at a ski shop when I was in high school and went back and worked there and just skied a lot and, and uh, hung out and had a good time. And then my brother, he uh, owned a landscaping company in Steamboat. I went to work for him because I had nothing else to do. And so uh, we ended up building this landscape company to a pretty sizable endeavor. Uh, we had tons of employees and we did snow removal and landscaping and hung Christmas lights and all that. And it was all fine and well, but I, I totally wasn't all that happy. I was just, you know, working to, to work, but we were doing a landscape project and it was out in you know, West of Steamboat in the, in the shale beds. And we found, um, I was digging, trying to plant some trees and digging these holes into this, into this shale. And it was ridiculous, but I started to see all these like fossil impressions, right? and in the shale and was like wow this is cool now uh, granted i know fossils in shale are not archaeology but it it really like kind of brought up uh, a, a memory kind of from when i was a kid right the, the history side the science side the nature side but also like like i think a lot of the people that have been on the podcast and and that are out there you know indiana jones was a was a big part of my childhood and it's super cliche to say but it is and so I, I got done with that project and started going back to the office. And rather than doing like invoicing and billing and bids, I was like reading articles about archaeology and realized like, oh, my God, this is like a career. Like someone could go do this. So I uh, I bailed out of the business, this pretty successful business, although it was right as the market and everything was crashing. So things were not trending in a good way and ended up going back to Boulder in part because CU at the time, maybe they still do, had this Thing where you could you could un unenroll but stay enrolled for uh, four or five years and and basically come back and I looked at my GPA and was like if I don't come back now I'm never getting back into CU so I decided to to bail on Steamboat and move down to Boulder with uh, my then girlfriend my now wife and uh, and enrolled in class and my first class was was uh, Anth 2000 or 2200 whatever it is with uh, uh, Doug Bamforth there at CU and intro to archaeology and uh bam i was i was hooked from that point forward dude nice. anth 2200 has been my ta hell entire <laughs> time since i've been here as that's all they assign me to because i do so good in it i'm just like man and i do enjoy anth 2200 is a fun course and that yeah so I, and i know that that very well doug still teaches that he's still He's still the he guy. Must do a good job. Still awesome. does, does he still he's use the, uh, the the slide projector? Because back then he was he was rolling the uh, the slide deck, and this was like 2010 or something. <laughs> no, they installed in the inhale um, overhead projectors. Uh -huh. So now in the the big lecture halls, there's two projectors that come down on no yeah two my my bad yeah two on each side, and there's like a big TV screen on the top. So sure yeah yeah they've it's it's been renovated since. Is my understanding. <laughs> So Ant 2200 with with uh, Dr. Bamforth, huh? And so that's when you decided to be an Ant major? 
Yeah, yeah. When I enrolled, I became an anth major and, and took that class and, and uh, uh, just kept on going. And then he talked about a, a field school or what, what was the field school, but it was like, go do experience archaeology this next summer. And I, I immediately jumped at that opportunity and uh, yeah, lined up and went up to uh, the King site in Nebraska and near Shadron and uh, worked, I think it was the second year that Doug and company were at the King site and that was my field school. And uh, I knew, you know, within the first day or two that this was exactly what I wanted to be, where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do as a career. So yeah, that was that. Man, if you ever want to come back and just start going through that King State stuff, it is all <laughs> over the lab. Like he hasn't touched it since those field schools are kind of like, come on, man, you got to do something with this. We're at a new site. Like we got to clear up the lab. Yeah, the uh, last time I was there, there was the bison skull in the foam still jacket. There. Still there. Still there. <clears throat> that was us. Like the last day of field school, we, we saw this skull and Doug's like, get it, get it. So we just... We just went to town and <laughs> pulled that sucker out and it's still there. That's great. Well, good stuff. What what then led you to, you know, where was that moment where you decided to get a graduate degree in anthropology? Did you know like right away or was there a break in between? Yeah, great question. There, there was a break in between. I So when I was an undergrad, I saw a, a flyer for the Anthro Club and a, and a talk by a guy named Mark Mitchell, and he was going to talk about his research. He was a PhD student at CU at the time, and it sounded interesting, but he, at the end of the flyer, said, like, learn how to get paid doing archaeology. I was like, well, that's for me. <laughs> So I went to the talk and, and ended up talking to, to Mark and Mark and is the research director for Paleocultural Research Group and PCRG, my, my current employer. But at the time they were hiring and we still do. Uh, we hire work study students from CU Boulder and, and University of Colorado Denver. And uh, so I was still in school and an undergrad and decided to take my work study award and go work in an archaeology lab. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I was so fortunate to, to meet Mark. And he was such a great mentor to me and really advised me that, you know, graduate school is in your future, but, you know, try it before you buy it kind of thing. And that's that's one yeah. of the great things about archaeology is there's so many opportunities to, to really dive in to see if you actually like what the work is before you you do it. So Mark hired me on one summer, the, my first summer as like a assistant field supervisor. And I had no business with that title, but that's what I was doing. And the summer prior, I'd worked for the Forest Service, the Route National Forest out of Steamboat, uh, as it just so happened, I was able to get a job back in my hometown. So did a summer on a Forest Service crew, which was great, and then came back and finished finished school and then stuck around PCRG as, as a field crew guy and, and did that. And, and I followed Mark's advice and realized I should take a year off. And so I, I took a year off, and um, but then started to think about graduate school kind of late summer, early fall. And I had the great fortune of meeting Dr. Jason LaBelle when I was still an undergrad at, at CU. Uh, Dr. Craig Lee gave took a like a undergraduate paleo-Indian seminar with him, and he organized a tour out to the Lindenmeyer site that I think you had Kelton Meyer on uh, Mm. a while ago and he was talking about Lindenmeyer and so Craig and Jason had this tour out to Lindenmeyer and I went out and was able to meet Jason and got to know him and uh, it was really fantastic and really liked him and, and was super engaged with what he was doing and, and his kind of mentorship and training and so I ended up going to the Plains Conference in 2010 in Bismarck 
and I gave a paper, a conference paper, my first ever conference, I gave a conference paper and that was a, a wild experience. But Jason saw that paper and came up to me in the bar afterwards and said, hey, come to CSU, apply. And so I did. And the next year in 2011, I, I did that. And the summer prior, I worked on a CRM crew for Metcalf Archaeological Consultants doing some mitigation uh, excavations in Wyoming. Yeah. And then I went to CSU in 2011. So you got to see you after Craig Lee had already left, right? Or did your experiences overlap? He was no longer a student there, I believe, but he was like an adjunct professor. And so I took that, that class from him and Mark Mitchell and Craig are good buds. So I got to know Craig kind of on the side as well. And, and then when I went to Metcalf, I worked with Craig's wife, Jenny Lee, who's a fantastic person. And, and, uh, taught me a lot as well. So overlapped a little bit, but not as a student undergrad gotcha. kind of thing. I understand. When you started at CSU, did your blood begin to burn going from <laughs> to a ramp? Uh, I wouldn't say it burned, but uh, there's definitely a, uh, a, a, a conflict there. And, you know, your undergrad, I think that that's that's who you root for, right? That's I, I did the football games in the early 2000s at CU back when they actually were like good. So I think in my heart, I'm, I'm always a buff. But I like to, to think of myself as like a, a rough maybe or a or a bam or, or a bum. I don't know. One of, one of those <laughs> mixtures. <laughs> I love CSU, too. I, I do love they, they gave me a lot of opportunities that I have taken advantage of. So it's both, both are great, but go buffs. <laughs> Excellent. Man, I wish Connor was on to hear, to hear that, um, <laughs> yeah. but he'll listen to this. So who knows? So what was your, uh, what's your thesis end up being on while you were at uh, CSU? So anybody who knows Dr. LaBelle, it's, you show up and it's a, it's a fire hose of thesis ideas that just get pumped in your face. And so I was running around like crazy, but in in 2011, we went up to the Rocky Mountain Anthropological Conference in Missoula, Montana, and Jason's notorious for bringing a bunch of students and, and making big road trips and stopping at a bunch of sites. And we ended up going to a few different places and we're driving by these buffalo jumps. And I was I remember buffalo jumps from when I was an undergrad, Doug talking about it in his Great Plains class. And was like just always fascinated by that idea and i was talking to jason riding shotgun i'll never forget the moment we we're driving by the immigrant buffalo jump in in montana and he looks at me and he's like you know we've there's a there's a bison jump collection in the csu repository that really needs to be reanalyzed and kind of gave the little doggy headcock like really okay well <laughs> let's let's talk more about that and so i ended up diving into uh, an analysis of the roberts ranch bison jump collection for my for my thesis so i guess i'm familiar with it but i don't know anything more about it could you talk about that bison jump real quick what's it look like yeah about about robert's jump in particular yeah yeah so it's uh george frizen has a line in uh prehistoric hunter gatherers of the northern plains i'll probably butcher exactly what he says but he says you could you could stand at the robert's buffalo jump and look north and, and go from jump to jump all the way to canada so what he's saying there is the Roberts Ranch jump is the southernmost bison jump on the plains, mm-hmm. at least that dates to the late prehistoric. There's you know bonfire shelter that's Paleo-Indian age jump. Maybe there's some contention about that, but what Frizen's saying is is that's the the southernmost late prehistoric jump, and so it's uh, in Larimer County, kind of you know 15, 20 minutes north of Fort Collins, kind of near the town of Livermore. It's on private land and 
it was excavated in the in the 1960s and early 1970s by avocationals and some folks from CSU. Gotcha. Yeah, I can tell you more later, but yeah, no, absolutely. We'd be excited to bring this into the second segment. So everyone stay tuned. We're going to be right back with episode 91 um, with Chris Johnston. Welcome back to episode 91 of the Life and Ruins podcast. Nine away, nine away, guys. Speaking of nine episodes away, if you guys are listening to this podcast on, let's say you're listening on iTunes, there's the all shows feed and then there's like the Alive and Ruins feed. Uh, we're curious to know which one you are listening on. If you could let us know, like on Instagram, or shoot us an email, or something. Please listen on our on our feed. It's much easier to track metrics if you <laughs> listen directly to our show rather than the all show. All shows feed's great, but you know, take that extra step and follow us on our on our feed. That's all we're asking. I think the all shows feed too. Like it might just be people automatically downloading, but if that's where you're getting it, yeah, try to look at us on like actually on Ruins. I think on Spotify, it's pretty easy to do that as well. But yeah, so uh, we're back, let's see, with uh, Chris Johnston. I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but the guy used to be the assistant state archaeologist of Colorado. He had all that cool stuff to say in the first segment, but just so you know, he is officially cool in that sense. <laughs> but we're going to talk more about that buffalo jump before we get into you know what you do for a living. So you want to continue that? Yeah, sure. So so the Roberts Ranch buffalo jump, a uh, little, little backstory. It was the first excavation there was in 1966 by a group of avocational archaeologists led by a guy named Ray Barker. And he was contacted, they were contacted by the landowner at the time, and the family still owns it. The Roberts Ranch is a centennial ranch in Colorado, so it's been owned by the same family for over 100 years. And But Evan Roberts was the patriarch at the time, and he contacted these guys because he had changed the course of a, of a stream that ran through and exposed all this bone. So they went out and did some excavations there. But, you know, it's avocational, the 1960s, it the records aren't that great. So in 1969, a guy named Jim Judge, who many folks may know, he's a Southwestern, most known for being a, a Southwestern Paleo-Indian guy, and maybe also known as being the father of, of Mike Judge, the creator of Beavis and Butthead and Office Space and on the great cult classic uh, Idiocracy, which I thought I heard that name. is uh, present to the, to the current time. <laughs> uh, so Jim came to CSU like right out, right out of getting his PhD or he was still working on it. But he sent some students out in 69 because he heard about this Buffalo jump and they went and tested it. And then in 1970, did the first CSU field school at the Roberts Ranch Buffalo jump. And they were also at a site called Fort Vasquez as a trading post and kind of just, just east of I-25. Hmm. So they did that. And, and then Jim bolted to uh, New Mexico and Elizabeth Morris came on to CSU in 77 or 71. And, and, um, but a guy named Max Whitkind wrote his master's thesis on the Roberts Ranch Buffalo Jump collection. So his Max's thesis was published in 71. But if you kind of look at the, the history of bison jump research or bison killer research, really, it's, it's like just taking off in the late 60s to early 70s. And Frizen and, and Chuck Greer and, and others, you know, haven't really cut their teeth into it yet. So Wittkind's thesis was kind of one of the first documents published about bison jumps. There's some earlier stuff, of course, but so this collection was sitting there. Max published his thesis and it's cited here and there. And like I gave you that quote of, of Frizen from Priester Connors Gathers of the High Plains. But when I took over looking at the collection, we kind of settled on that as my thesis idea. I was looking at it and 
seeing all the new methods that had been developed since 71 on, on how to analyze bone beds and how to analyze faunal remains and what we know about jumps. So my approach was to kind of take those new methods and apply it to an old collection. And for, you know, budding graduate students out there, there are a ton of collections sitting on shelves that are in need of things like this. You don't need to go do your own field work and dig more holes. There's so much stuff out there to do. And so that's I what did. I did. And <laughs> I dated it. The site had never been dated and did some spatial analysis of the bone assemblage and discovered that there was a bunch of fetal bison bone in the assemblage. Actually, it's now kind of one of the largest fetal bison assemblages that we know from a kill site. Kind of the quick and dirty, the, the site dates to the radiocarbon dates, kind of, of course, hit the plateau, but some, somewhere in the 1600s, probably. There's no like metal cut mark, so I argue that it's it's on the lower end of the range that I have for that reason. There's no trade goods or anything present there, at least that we know of. It's got pottery and, and chipstone tools, butchery tools, uh, broken you know arrow points, tri-notched and side-notched arrow points, and yeah, and then I did some spatial analysis and kind of could sort of using elements, different elements of the bison, kind of figure out what was most likely kind of the processing area and what was most likely the kind of initial kill zone. So you've got the bison coming over the over the cliff to their demise, but you need to kind of pull them apart and get them out of there and, and you want to get the good stuff, good elements, the the long bones that have good marrow and meat and rib ribs and, and things like that. So I could see kind of a... A difference in where the elements were across the site. They they did uh, four 10 by 10 foot excavation squares. But a lot of the struggle early on, at least, was was trying to figure out like their grid system and how it all worked. There were not very good notes on any of that, and so it took a lot of time to to determine kind of even how to think about the site spatially. But once I was able to crack that code, the data were quite good, so I was able to reconstruct a lot of what they did and in the excavation. Gotcha, man. That's awesome. I know I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have to go back through some advocational archaeologist kind of notes. Like I'm still trying to wrap my mind around some of the stuff Dennis Stanford did back in 70, 73, yeah. you know, so I, I, I can't imagine, man, what that was like, but 1600s, man, that, that late for a, a bison jump. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, you look at the, the range of bison jumps that they, they really start to take off, they, they, they show up in the you know middle archaic here and there, head smashed in, it's got an early use, but then it kind of peters out. And really the, the bison jumping flourishes kind of in, you know, a thousand AD. That's when it's like, just becomes, you know, Kehoe has this line and, and Banforth also this industrial scale of bison hunting around that time and so it's it's not not uncommon the thing with roberts is it's the 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 concentration of bison jumps are are to the north northern wyoming montana alberta that's where they're really kind of concentrated judy cooper's dissertation in 2008 she really lays out kind of where these sites are concentrated and so it's definitely a cultural thing no doubt but yeah 1600s is not not unheard of. And uh, I uncovered a quote when I was doing my research about, I think from, from Fawcett and he referencing something from the, an ethnographic thing from the early 1900s and talking to an Arapaho chief about watching a bunch of Arapaho folks drive bison over a cliff somewhere in Colorado where we don't know, but so it's not, not unheard of for sure. That's who I was thinking immediately of like, who could have been at Robert's ranch and like Arapahoes came out of, you know, from the North kind of late 
And I know that area of, of the plains has a lot of bison jump. So I was just kind of curious to see, like, were they bringing that style of bison procurement with them as they came down to the to the front range? Yeah, it wouldn't shock me, man. The the one perplexing thing at Roberts is there's pot, two different types of pottery there. There's like punctate, kind of fingernail and press pottery that is most often associated with the Utes. And then there's a pretty complete, uh, there's a picture of a pretty complete intermountain wear vessel that is most kind of associated with the Shoshone peoples. So both those types of pottery are, are appear to be showing up there. So it's a little kind of, it was... A thing that, uh, as I was doing my thesis, was like, man, I don't, <laughs> I got to get this done. I was already way behind. I'd had a kid and like needed to just be done. So I, I, yeah. I abandoned trying to investigate that anymore because, as you all know, you opening up, answering questions opens up a hundred more. And so I, I had to cut the cord at some point. Fair enough, man. You said like it was an industrial scale, like bison jump, like processing. Like that, that's, uh, I don't think a lot of people realize how much bison was like consumed out west like you can't stick a shovel in the ground without finding bison bones yeah if there's one thing that that people that lived on the plains for the last 12 13,000 years did it was it was hunt bison that's they were they were doing that but within the last thousand years it, it does just turn into this industrial thing industrial scale hundreds and hundreds of bison roberts isn't like that there's uh, i have an mni a minimum number of individuals of of 19 plus an mni on the fetal bison of of eight so right wow. pregnant cows uh, were were done and we did some seasonal studies and it looks like it's probably you know, late late fall to midwinter season of death so which tracks with gotcha. what we know about bison kills typically wow. fair enough man well, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I'd love to talk more about it. However, I do want to talk more about Paleocultural Research Group, PCRG, who you work for. So what is the purpose of PCRG? Like what it is, you, you mentioned earlier to David, it's like not quite a CRM firm, but it's not university. Like what is PCRG? PCRG, uh, I guess I'll start by saying I have the best job in the world uh, because I work for PCRG. So nice. PCRG was started about 25 years ago by a guy named uh, Stan Ayler, who's pretty pretty well known for working on the planes and lithic technology and lithic analysis. And uh, so Stan and, and a guy named Carl Falk and another guy named Eric Feiler, they started PCRG as a way to do research and education. So we are, that's kind of our tagline. We're public archaeology, research, education, Great Plains, Rocky Mountain archaeology. That's kind of the 10-second the elevator pitch of who we are. But when you burrow into it a little bit, we're a member-supported organization. So we have a membership roster. A few hundred people kind of support our mission. And we, we do research and education. So outreach and public talks and research projects. We, we do a whole variety of things, management plans, collections work, but our bread and butter is working with uh, varying agencies, Forest Service, Park Service, BLM, federal agencies, and state agencies like the state of Colorado and the state of North Dakota. And we organize uh, five to seven field projects most summers. These projects are funded in a variety of, of ways, mainly grants, and we take advantage of, of Colorado's State Historical Fund, which is a really great uh, grant program that folks, if they're not familiar, should look into it. And we get grants to go do research. We uh, do a, a lot of excavations. That is kind of our bread and butter. What really is is our shtick is we invite 
people to come on our projects. And by people, I mean anybody. It could be someone who's never done archaeology before, but has a real passion for it or an interest in like, gosh, I've always wanted to do this. And so a lot of retired folks or near retired folks who, uh, when they were kids, wanted to be an archaeologist like, like we are, but, you know, became accountants or lawyers or whatever. So they come out and volunteer their time with us. Uh, professional archaeologists take a busman's holiday and, and come out and do some fun work with us. Students, we get a lot of students and, and recent grads trying to get a little more experience. And we take them out, we, we feed you, we give you a place to put a tent, and we give you all the tools you need. So all you need to do is bring your own camping equipment and, and come on out and we train you on everything. We have really good kind of protocols to ensure that things are, are up to you know professional mm-hmm. standards, but it allows people a, an opportunity to experience archaeology and do it. And so when when you said you know CRM, we we don't really do CRM. We're not out bidding on on you know pipeline surveys or mm-hmm. things like that. Kind of the world we live in a lot is is Section 110 of the National Historic Preservation Act. So a lot of people are probably familiar with Section 106, right? That's what fuels a lot of contract archaeology and pipelines and wind farms and cell towers and all that stuff. Uh, Section 110 is is a piece of the National Historic Preservation Act that has federal agencies uh, set out some goals and guidelines to manage their resources. So the Forest Service, you know, they, they're a land managing agency and each forest has property that has cultural resources on it and they need to manage that. But oftentimes they don't have the the staff, the funds themselves to, to do it, the time, really the time's probably the biggest thing. So they bring in us and we do, they, they put, we cobble together funding and we go do projects. So like an example, I'm working with the Route National Forest on a number of projects, but most recently this past summer, we did a year or two of, of excavations at a uh, the Windy Ridge Quartzite Quarry is a, a massive quartzite quarry in the in the Rocky Mountains outside of Steamboat, which is kind of cool for me. It's like my, my old stomping grounds and I'm getting to do archaeology there. And they needed to know kind of how big the resource was, how far it extended away from the quarry itself. And so for two years, we brought a, a team of 10 to 15 volunteers, actually like 15 to 18 volunteers uh, over two different field seasons and, and did some some surveying and, and some testing and collections work on on Doug Banforth worked at the site in the early 90s and I have his collections and I'm uh, kind of reanalyzing them and so that's just an example of one project we do we also do a ton of work up in North Dakota on uh, mostly Plains Village archaeology uh, research director Mark Mitchell who I mentioned earlier that's his dissertation research and and he's kind of the the uh, the leading scholar I guess on on Plains Village archaeology we work with the state of North Dakota on a lot of those sites as well do you guys work with MHA at all on those sites up there we do. Yeah. We've had some MHA folks come and work with us on the projects. And then, of course, all the conversations leading up to the projects, uh, MHA is, is heavily involved. Uh, yeah, Mark's really good about yeah, yes. reaching out to, to three affiliated and, and uh, getting them on board. And we want to do more for sure. We, there's always more to do. There's always more outreach to do with uh, indigenous folks. and, and But it's, it's sometimes a a tricky road to to not everyone you know wants us there for for yeah they have totally valid reasons for that and uh, uh there's there's definitely a, a a marriage somewhere in there of, of archaeology and, and and cultural history and 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 your own culture for sure we might get mary baker at cu boulder she's thinking of coming here for grad school i know so, i love so mary. mary mary's Mary been with us on a few projects yeah i love love mary yeah mary, after, mary made the bit the best wasp trap i've ever seen in my life we were at, at a campsite up in north dakota and we were just getting pounded by these 
wasps and she made this <laughs> for, like, for a moment i thought you're talking about white anglo-saxon protestants for a moment i was like what did you, <laughs> uh, maybe like, that no, too. actual wasps like actual gotcha. wasps stinging stinging bugs yeah gotcha yeah, yeah, yeah dude. i love mary that's great excellent excellent the other one you would just get you know mumford and sons cd and put it there and <laughs> <laughs> and the blowfish. <laughs> all that aside though i think I didn't know you guys did that with all the volunteer work and stuff like that. And that's awesome. It's my first introduction to archaeology field work was at the Topper site, which was a big, like it was just all retired people that wanted to be archaeologists as well. Now doing it, you know, on the side uh, and enjoying it. Like I learned to dig from them, but yeah, it's like that, that atmosphere is really fun because then everybody is excited about archaeology. And I imagine CRM for me can get kind of like grueling and you're like, what am I doing? But like in what you guys are doing, that's got to be awesome because you just got fresh. I think you really hit it on the head there, David. Like the one of the best, my favorite thing is going out to the field with with all these volunteers because sort of unlike a field school, they don't have to be there. Uh, They're Mm -hmm. they're making the conscious choice that they want to go and they can leave at any time. And so it's so much, we have such a great cadre of volunteers and we get to meet new ones every, that was the hardest part of 2020. We had to cancel the field season and and missing all of our friends out there and and everything. So super happy to get back this year, but I I think you really nailed it right there, David. Cool. Well, on that, let's put a nail in this segment. I can't do Connor's job. Um, All right. We'll come back on the next one. Welcome back to Life and Ruins podcast, episode 91. We're here with Chris Johnston. So as you guys know by now, the third segment, we always like to allow this space for our guests to talk about something they're passionate about. And Chris had a fantastic suggestion, something that we haven't really talked about yet on this podcast in depth, but kind of talking about how archaeology can often bring us into the micro scale of the past, like counting flakes, measuring tools, quantify final remains. And we just kind of end with doing statistics and basically being bean counters. What's your opinion of that, Chris? Like how, how can we do better then? <laughs> I don't know if I can tell us how we can do better, but I, I do. I think about this a lot. Like one thing I'm super passionate about and is trying to zoom us back out. And I, I'm just as guilty as as you two and probably everyone else out there is. We have timelines and budgets and projects and, and compliance reports and the pipeline needs to get in. And we do the things we have to do, right? We present the data, we report the data and get it out there. And I just, I often think like, what more should we be doing? And you look at like National Historic Preservation Act, right? That's best. 1966 that's just been the driver of archaeology for the last 50 some 55 years now right where are we going to go with this at some point right i do public archaeology i say i do public archaeology but what does that mean like all archaeology is public right most archaeology is funded by public funds right and yeah grant grant agencies and, and land managing agencies and um what's what can we do so i i often just dream about and again i i don't have anything to hang my hat on necessarily but like zooming us back out and trying to connect these dots now 50 some years later of all these sites and collections we've dug up and and dealt with and presented and analyzed and ran every chi square p test you name it on it how do we put it together and one one thing i really all i often think about is my work with bison jumps and doing a lot of background research on that. And like I talked about earlier, the, they, they really kind of get to that industrial scale, you know, 2000, a thousand, 500 years ago, they're just the people in the West, probably the Blackfeet or the ancestral Blackfeet are, are just jamming bison out 
bison kill after bison kill, hundreds and hundreds of bison. And there's no way they could be eating all of that and utilizing all of that. And this marriage between what I've gotten into more recently with my work at PCRG and, and Mark Mitchell at, at Plains Village Sites and thinking about you've got these villages, these massive villages kind of down the Missouri, and then you go up the Missouri and you've got these massive bison kills. And just in my head, there's no way you can tell me that there's not some link there, right? There's just got to be. But how do you prove it? I think you got to go find the data and, and, and do that. If I, if I did a PhD at some point, which I'm not going to do, um, <laughs> at least not in the near future, semi-near future, it would be around that topic, like trying to dig into it. Is it isotopic data and bison teeth? Is it corn, pottery, you know, language? How, how do you merge that? I don't know. But I think we can get so focused on the on the minute details in archaeology that we that we lose kind of the whole point of what we're trying to do, right? Which is to investigate yeah. the past. I don't know. What do you guys think? We get a little too processual these days, I think. Yeah. And like, well, yeah, Carlton said like bean counting and it's like MNI is great. Like we need to know how many bison are there, like determining seasonality and stuff like that's awesome. But like the more holistic stuff, I think is more of what will save archaeology, I guess, like uh, applying it to why does it matter to you? Like, does the public care about how many pieces of debitage or how much reduction there was on this biface? Not really, but like no. the people there making the biface, like what they were, their daily life would have been like, yeah, I don't know if that answers it or not, but I don't know. Um, I think I brought it up a couple times on this podcast, like something that I've kind of really grown to envy about the European system of archaeology is that it's under history. And when you have archaeology as history, it tells a different story than archaeology yeah. as anthropology. Like I'm totally all for the four fields approach. Do not get me wrong. But kind of when you when you do it to understand human behavior, you're using your site or your group of sites as a case study in comparison to the rest of the world rather than trying to tell the story about the people that lived at that site. Hmm. And so, you know, like a lot of my work, I'm trying to relate the past back to the Northern Catawans, right? Like that's what I'm trying to do is like try to find my people's past so I can write it as like, this is our history. And then the further you go, like, you know, I grew up with David in paleo Indian land and it just, you know, something I kind of noticed is it's not, I don't, but they're going to kill me if they hear this. Cause I know Todd listens to this podcast in the field, um, <laughs> but what's the point? At the end of the day, like, I don't understand, like, I, I read paleo Indian stuff and I'm like, okay, this is just like you said, Chris, like, this is just another site. I'm just looking at tables of the debitage they found, the bison they found, the ochre they found. But like, what is this telling us about human history and human behavior other than like, we have another site that's, and I have all this, all the statistics to tell me based on what they found, where they got their lithic material from, but. But so what? Exactly. Yeah. Where's the people, the, the people piece of that story? And I think, you know, it, it gets harder and harder, as you alluded to, Carlton, as you go back in time, like linking the person, the the face of who made that tool to that tool is just gets harder and harder for us to do as archaeologists. But I, I go, I think about when I'm out in the field with a bunch of volunteers and we've got folks that have never done archaeology before and they're excavating and they hear that, you know, that tink, right? That trowel on a, on a piece of chert and you get that familiar sound. And for me, it's like, okay, another flake. But these people are going nuts. Like, oh my God, look at this. And rightly so, right? We all had that experience when, when we first started out. And, and, and then, you know, they say time and time again, like, wow, 
I'm the first person to hold this in, you know, a thousand years or 5,000 years or whatever. Right. And so I think about that connection to like people today and people to the past. And we've, we've, we have that link right there in the, like kind of the discovery. And I, I hate to couch archeology span and like the discovery, but at the end of the day, that's kind of what it is. And, and just seeing them so excited. And I think my, we just got to be careful. We have to really think about what it is that we're doing and, and the story we're telling on multiple fronts, right? We have to bring in uh, native folks into that discussion more than we do. And, uh, you know, certainly things are better now than they were 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago, but there's certainly more work to do and, and hearing their perspective on those flakes and uh, do they care how many you know oh you got 10 flakes of this chert and 15 flakes of that quartzite like neat uh they probably don't care <laughs> uh, but also at the same time like thinking about the the broader view of of archaeology and you know carlton you bring up the paleo-union piece uh, certainly that's that gets right that gets all the national geographic articles because it's mm-hmm. it's cool it's interesting i don't don't deny it but when we're always in search of, of the earliest or the first, right? You're never going to, I think I was listening the other day to was it Heather Rockwell's piece and yeah. she was saying something about like, you're never going to find the, the oldest or the first. And, and like, I almost drove my car into a bridge embankment because I couldn't agree more. Like we're never going to know. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though. Like it's, we got, we have to keep that in mind. The public doesn't know that. Right. To, yeah. But, in our minds, we have to know, like, this isn't the oldest. It can't be the oldest because how do you know it's the oldest, right? Right. And I, I think in the Paleo-Indian sense, too, like, it's like, sexy would be the word because uh, totally. it's the oldest, you know, group in the, the country. And it kind of connects them to the old world a bit, like where, you know, humans migrating, coming into the Americas. And it's like, whether well, this is how humans got here. But like there's only so much so like some sites are different you got quarries now there's like a mammoth kill site and you learn a little bit more about like their how that day-to-day was but like yeah it it, at the end of the day like it there's other more interesting sites like bison kills and things like that that are like super interesting or like um, contact era sites like where they start getting horses and things like yeah we definitely get a little too focused on certain ones but then that generates interest in the field. And like, I got into the archeology span because of that. Also Indiana Jones. I have no shame saying that. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's tough. Cause we all have our little like fascinations with history, but that's like the thing everyone does. And I had another point here, but yeah, picking up the flake and stuff like that or a biface. It's like, that was that person's pocket knife 10,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago. And like, it's intimate picking it up, but it just becomes too much of a report like you know there's x amount of tertiary flakes and yeah yeah how to change it yeah and i i don't either i think i guess my my only point is and i like trust me uh, todd if you're listening i'm not dumping on on paleo indian archaeology (laughs) yeah we can uh, shit on it sorry (laughs) there's uh you know there's there's at a at a Clovis site, what you get, uh, you know, a Clovis base and a few flakes, and like that's a good day. Mm-hmm. But then we then we like gloss over these like 
right like North Dakota, you know, ancestral Mandan Hidatsa villages, these these towns where these people lived and like, I'm so happy you said towns. That makes me so happy you said towns. <laughs> yeah, or they're they're practically cities and something like double ditch man. That's a that's a metropolis. There's like the things are happening there, right? And yeah, you can't. Like, deny I, I left that. Wyoming and I don't know a single thing about how like a Shoshone site is formed or what it mostly looks like or how many people were there. But I worked on like several sites where I mapped them and like, yeah, that's a good point. Like I just, yeah. everything else is kind of overshadowed. Well, and it's, it's part of the ephemeral record too of hunter gatherer archeology. span And there's, there's absolutely nothing we can do to rectify that. Like yeah. people who have a soft imprint on the landscape are going to leave a soft material culture. Well, not soft material culture that's gone, but like a limited material culture. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it balances out because they make more sites, right? Like that was the big, I think like back in the 60s, that was the thing like, well, hunter-gatherers can be overrepresented. But as you said, Chris, like, but they're very ephemeral. It's hard to find them. They make more, but it's hard to find them all. So it kind of, you know, it kind of evens itself out a little bit yeah. in that regard. But Yeah, and I, th- I think people are are moving in that direction. You know, like your, your advisor and my undergraduate advisor, Doug Bamforth, he's got that uh, a 2011 paper in, uh, in American antiquity. And he's, he's like trying to connect some of the dots at least and, and tell a bigger story. And like Bob Kelly, like he's fantastic at that. Like let's, let's start, but it's dangerous, right? You get, you get some of these big data sets and you can veer off into some pretty bad directions quickly if you're not careful, um, but you can you can also kind of irritate a lot of people by making large sweeping claims. So it's mm-hmm. it's tough. I think I think we could learn a lot from uh, as as a plains archaeologist. I often look to uh, to the the millions of southwestern archaeologists that are are down there and uh, got some massive data sets and doing some really cool innovative things. And I try to to talk to my my brethren on the plains about like let's let's use these methods or let's think about this, you know, social network analysis or, or Turkey as proxy for human migration. Like, damn, that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, um, and finding ways to do that on the planes. But you know, that the thing with the planes is like, I can name most of the people that work along the Missouri river. There's like you, Mark Mitchell, there's Travis Jones, me, Doug, you have Ritterbush, Adair down South. Like there's just no one working in the planes. Totally. Like, you know, Doug, for me, Doug and his new student and, and Dr. Carlson, like Nebraska is our playground for the Plains village period. Like no one's there. Yeah. No one's looking at it. And we are working on that initial coalescent variant site. And you guys are just up the river from us working on, you know, a little bit later stuff. There's just no one to do any of this work. It's kind of like, it's cool that we have it as our own playground, but there's just so much to have to deal with that. It's like, you know, you can spend a career looking at a lot of this stuff like the Southwesterns do. And we just don't have that data set. Yeah. We don't have the, I think you nailed it. We don't have the people. So if you're a budding graduate student or undergrad and you're looking to, to make a, make a niche, come to the plains. There's, there's the world is wide open and we need more people. And it's something, you know, I'm on the board of directors for the plains anthropological society. And it's something we, we talk about a lot, actually, like looking at our universities on the plains or, or plains adjacent universities and, you know, faculty that came in in the late seventies, early eighties, they're, they're mid eighties, they're retiring, they're, they're moving on. And those positions aren't getting filled by plains archeologists. They're getting filled by people doing work in Mesoamerica or, you know, that, that get the national geographic shows. And uh, so I, I think at least from the plains perspective, we need to really start 
talking about these bigger issues, these bigger pictures and connecting these dots and telling a bigger story or else we're, we're dead in the water. I mean, yeah, there's like no plane school anymore. Like you'd think UNL or, you know, university of Nebraska, Lincoln or Kansas, but you know, most of what is it like university of Wyoming has one of the highest registration, like people in planes per university. Yeah. In the, in the society, I think Colorado and Wyoming are the top two. And we're periphery. OU is a periphery. Like all these schools on the edge of the planes are kind of planes programs. But Doug's the only one that does planes here yeah. as a faculty. Uh, Marcel, Bob Kelly, like, you know, they're in Northwest Plains, but they mostly do, they go to RMAC. Sure. Yeah. They're mountain folks. And hey, you can't talk about the planes without talking about the mountains. Yeah. And right. Like, and that's, that's, that's the whole point of what I kind of am saying is like, these things are all connected, right? Like Lewis and Clark didn't show up at, at Awatiha village in, in North Dakota in the early 1800s and be like, God, I hope we get lucky and make it over those mountains. Like they knew they were talking to the Mandans and, yeah. and the Hadatsas and like, they knew where to go. They knew how to get there. And it, it wasn't by, by chance. Like there is a bigger story. There is a bigger connection there we just we just have to burrow in and and uh and take some risks i think and tell it and uh engage more people in in plains and mountain archaeology or else we're gonna we're gonna be in a bad spot i should get a lewis and clark guy on here or girl one yeah dude yeah i have an idea for a guy who likes mountain men and knows a lot about the mountain man meetups oh that'd be cool that'd be a good one but there's that damn cat again um (laughs) go ahead for go david uh i guess a, a quick plane story and this is something i did learn in wyoming is like I was working for Swicka out in the desert. Uh, I forget where, not desert. I don't know. It was just like a sage grassy, classic Wyoming. <laughs> Looking for flakes on the ground, mapping them. And then I found like one of those rolled can, uh, can lid jingle dress things. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, and I didn't. Tinklers or? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, jinglers or whatever they are. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know what it was. Like I knew it was a rolled up can, but I was like, I guess they were just messing with it. And the PI I was with was like, no, like they use this to like, because it was illegal to use the elk teeth jingles, so you had to use the like they rolled up the cans and stuff. And I was mm. like, "Whoa, that's like really cool!" And yeah. I just like shoved it into a bag and was like, "Next!" <laughs> like went to the next site. Uh, but yeah, like that kind of stuff. It's just like there's so much history right there, and like the whole cultural exchange, and yeah, like so cool. And that was like some girl's thing right there. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think like kind of as Chris saying like, there's some really cool stuff on the plains. Like you, you know, it's not easy archaeology like the Southwest where it's up and up and around you. You got to dig for it. But like we're like the places that me and and Chris work and others where we have these massive towns, and we could we could use some help. Like plains archaeology is meaningful. It is a it is a space in between the Southeast and Southwest and. There's just so much going on from these massive, like a bison or a mastodon, mammoth kill in Wyoming covered in ochre to these massive fortified palisade towns in North and South Dakota. There's some cool stuff on the plains and we could use some more people. Find your niche. I second that. (laughs) Oregon trail, like all that's out there. Yeah. The more, yeah. All the trails have to go through the plains. The plains is just that spot, man. And uh, you know, Excellent. Good stuff. Well, before we end the show, Chris, what are a couple sources? These could be books, articles, or videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in the topics that we've discussed tonight. Yeah, certainly. So if, if, uh, if bison jumps kind of where your jam, uh, you got interested in that, obviously you could look up my thesis, although it's a thesis, so don't, don't, uh, pillar me before it, but 
Jack Brink has a really great book called Imagining Head Smashed In. And Head Smashed In is, is a really neat site. And this book's like super publicly accessible. It's designed for the public. So highly recommend that. And then to kind of get at the what we were just sort of talking about, like connecting some of these dots, I love Doug Bamforth's 2011 American Antiquity article. The the name of it is escaping me, but you'll maybe put it in the show notes or something. It's a great, great piece. And then uh, Mark Mitchell, a PCRG research director, uh, his dissertation was turned into a book. And it's it's accessible, but it is academic-y. Uh, it's called mm-hmm. Crafting History in the Northern Plains, Political Economy of the Heart River Region, 1400 to 1750. It's a super great resource, kind of the most up-to-date on Plains Village archaeology uh, out there. Up on the Missouri region, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I've been mean, I have that book. I read it when I first got to Boulder, and I've been meaning to get him to sign it. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I love the work you guys are doing up there. I think you guys are doing a fantastic job, and it's oh, been thanks, really man. fun to kind of watch it. Where uh, can your listeners find you or find um, Paleocultural? On the webs, on the on the interwebs, yeah. So I, I I'm not super active on social media myself, and if sure. you sought me out, you'd see a bunch of pictures of my kids. But Facebook, uh, look up Paleocultural uh, RG, as in Paleocultural Research Group, or just search PCRG. We're out there. Instagram, our te- our handle is uh, Paleocultural, and then my my personal Twitter, which is uh, not super active, is CM Johnston eight. Cool. If you uh, had the chance to do research slash CRM slash academic right in the middle archaeology with volunteers again in ruins, would you? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, man. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I have the best job in in the world of archaeology and uh, it's opened up so many doors and I met so many great people and so many good lifelong friends through archaeology and uh, that aren't just archaeologists. And and so totally, 100%. Excellent. I'll have to come out there. Absolutely. Yeah. So we just interviewed Chris Johnson. You can find him and Paleocultural Research Group, PCRG on and Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find the links to those handles as well as his literature and media recommendations in the episode description, wherever, whatever service you're listening to this podcast. Again, if you're listening on the all shows feed, why don't you move on over to the regular A Life in Ruins feed. Uh, and while you're at that, if you're on the, um, you know, the app already, meander on over, give us a review. Five star, one star, whatever you want to do. Just give us some kind of text in there to <laughs> appease the algorithm. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Why did the naive Bayesian suddenly feel patriotic when he heard fireworks? I have no idea. Man. I don't know. He assumed independence. Oh, God. I don't understand that joke. I get it. I, I get would. it. That's yeah. great. That's fantastic. I'm going to have to send that to Eric. <laughs> uh, I can't think of anything else, though. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, uh, no Connor. No good dad jokes. No I got a good dad, dad joke. Oh, okay. let's hear it. Let's yeah, have a good You're a dad. <laughs> it's a terrible dad joke, but uh, what, what would you call it if every car in the nation was pink? I have no idea. Yeah. It'd be a pink carnation. Um, Boom. Terrible dad joke for the win. That's great. Thank you, Chris. And with that, we are out. <laughs>
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster and Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.